Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. I'm so happy to be here with Sue Ellen Browder, who is the author of the new book, Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. Sue Ellen, can you, um, first off, just talk a little bit why you put this book together? Well, I put this book together. I I wanted something short, almost like a pamphlet. It's only a little over 100 pages long that would sum up the history of the women's movement, of the feminist movement, quickly for the pro-life movement, because this has never been told before. And I want them to be able to be able to read this in a couple, three hours, pass it off to their friends, and uh, and also to protect young girls who are being hurt by what we call the F word, you know, feminism. And uh, so I wanted to straighten out what actually happened. Because I, you remember, I was a Cosmo, I wrote for Cosmopolitan for years and years and years. And after I became a Catholic at 50, age 57, so it was very, I was an old Catholic, um, that's when I uh, realized how, what the damage that the, uh, false, the false joining of the sexual revolution with the feminist movement had done to young women. So can you talk about why it's important to uh, retread, you know, go back and, and tell the history? Why is it important in particular because you talk about the new choices for a new generation? In particular, why is it important for young people to know everything you lived through? We need, we need to know the roots of all of this and where it all came from. But we also need to know why... How how has it hurt people? Why has it hurt people so much? That young women are being told that to be free, they have to go to college, get a great degree, have a fantastic job, and be as sexually free as possible. How did those two join together? That's what this book I, I wanted to tell them, so that more young women would not be hurt by the false joining of the sexual revolution with the feminist movement. So it's important to know our history because we can't know where we're going if we don't know where we've been, right? You need you need uh, that that uh, foundation to understand how to how to get out of it. Once you understand your history, you'll know more clearly how to go where you, where you're going. Now, even though, uh, as we know, John Paul II talked about feminism, used the new feminism phraseology. A lot of people, especially a lot of um, more traditional-minded and conservatives, say forget the word, you know, um, the, the word is too loaded. Um, why do you think differently? Well, I, because I went back to the, to the foundations of it, and we have to look at what feminism was originally all about. It was about fighting for women's dignity and respect and allowing women to have um, more choices in their lives. That's all it was about. It wasn't about uh, sexuality. It was also about a woman's personhood. And that's what uh, John Paul II was speaking about so much, was what does it mean to be a person? And that's what Betty Friedan, who launched Second Wave Feminism with her book, The Feminine Mystique, said feminism was all about. She said it was all about a woman's personhood. So, So when I saw that, I realized that she and John Paul II were agreeing on a lot more than people realize. Now, you talk about uh, in the book how there were two men who put 
Betty Friedan, up to all of this. Could you talk a little bit about that, especially because Bernard Nathanson is obviously such a fascinating figure because he uh, he converted um, after after what you chronicle in the book. Right. Well, he what he they these two men put Betty Friedan up to inserting abortion into the women's movement. And the abortion, when somebody I asked, somebody asked me one time, how did the sexual revolution and the women's movement get joined together? And she says, was it abortion? And I said, oh, yeah, that's what it was. So we so Betty Friedan was good friends with Larry Later and Bernard Nathanson, who were the co-founders of what's now NARAL Pro-Choice America. And those two men, according to Dr. Nathanson, who later became pro-life, he was an abortionist. He took responsibility for 75,000 abortions before he became uh, pro-life, saw a, a little baby on a, on a fetal screen and realized that was a real human person. And so he became pro-life and later became a Catholic. So these two men who co-found, and we, so this is how we know this is the truth because Dr. Bernard Nathanson confessed it. Okay, he told us how it happened. And so these two men convinced Betty Friedan to insert abortion into the women's movement, into the National Organization for Women's Political Bill of Rights. And we know the exact night it happened, November 18th, 1967, in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., when they got to, when these women, there were only about 100 people, a few men, mostly women, who got together to draw up the National Organizations for Bill of Rights. And they fought, over, they, they had eight rights on that list that day. And most of those rights were things we'd all agree with. They were things like uh, equal pay for equal work. A woman shouldn't be fired for being pregnant. I was fired for being pregnant in 1970. People forget this. Uh, a uh, family should be able to deduct uh, child care expenses on their income taxes. A woman should be able to serve on a jury. In some states, women couldn't serve on juries. So there are a lot of things that we all agree on. This is this is Catholic feminism. We all agree on these things. The one thing, the two things actually they fought over that night, one was the Equal Rights Amendment. That one is now history. The other was the abortion right. And they fought until almost midnight that night. And when the dust settled, only 57 people, a mere 57 people, had voted to insert abortion into the women's movement. And that we are still fighting over that vote today. You do make the the point very clearly in your book that uh, that there was there were, were these goods at, at the heart of feminism that a woman shouldn't be fired from her job because she's pregnant. Have you had any ex success um, speaking to women who consider themselves feminists who are on board with with the mainstream movement in um, in communicating this history and in finding common ground? Do you have hope for that if you haven't experienced it already? Well, I've had a lot of women, especially older women who've been through it and look back and see how much the that false joining of the sexual revolution with the feminism hurt them. I've talked to women who've had abortions and they said, oh, boy, was I deceived. Boy, was I calm. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of anger in older women when they see what happened there. 
Um, the younger women, I've got you know, a number of younger women. I'm here at Wyoming Catholic College. I'm not on the staff, but I, I'm here with a number of young ladies who decided that they wanted to talk about this book. And so they're, they're not hurt. They're not hurt yet because they haven't been hurt. Like these women who've had abortions and everything are really, you know, they're, they're, they've been wounded. But uh, these young women are on fire for the truth. And uh, I wrote this book, actually, mostly for them. So to protect them from being being hurt the way I was and the way so many women in my generation were. And, and the way, frankly, Wyoming Catholic attracts a certain population, um, their, their contemporaries, their, their, their friends beyond the college have, have already been hurt. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're very fervent Catholics. These, these young ladies are on fire. And they actually picked up this book and said, okay, we want to talk about it. We're reading it, which is a, a writer. Never, this never happens. But I'm in a room of, of people, and they're, they're reading the book aloud. And I'm sitting there going, oh, okay, now. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's a delight, actually. That must be. That must be fun. Has anything surprised you about the lens with which they're viewing it? Well, it was interesting because as I told um, them when we started, I said, we're not we're, we're going to debate this. I mean, if there's anything that bothers you about this or anything you don't understand, we're going to we're not going to sit here and be nice. We're going to debate this. And we started talking about the F word feminism, because so many people don't like that word. And should we use it? Or shouldn't we? Because it is a very confusing word. And one young woman says something that I had never thought of. She says, the problem is we need to use that word because she says it's become synonymous in so many people's minds with woman. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to redefine woman or define woman correctly, mm-hmm. we need to use the F word. And, I, and the reason why I said in my book, it's time to reclaim the F word, is because as a journalist, as you know, the journalists are all confused about this. And if I could just get the journalists to start saying there's a pro-life feminism out here and mm-hmm. there's a pro-abortion feminism out here and we need to get a dialogue going. That's, that's the, the goal, is mm-hmm. not only to protect young women so they won't be hurt, but also to get a dialogue going in the media. If we could do that, that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. It really is, uh, you know, b- both words seem to not have meaning and and they become so ideologically manipulative, which which that, uh, to, to the extent that it's just confusing and, and we have conversations that are kind of gibberish. Missing each other. We're missing yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. You know, one's talking here and one's talking there. It's, right. it's a very sad thing because this is one of the most polarizing ideas uh, concepts in our society and yet the me too movement which is coming from the political left are, are protesting the same things that, that the, the conservative feminists are protesting which is the sexual revolution treating a woman like a sex object no, all, no. All the same page that is why I'm so excited about your book, Sue Ellen, because uh, this this is what I've been waiting for, a book that says, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> we know, we, we understand, um, you know, the, the, so do you see yourself sort of re-communicating a lot of humanity vitae and, and, and so much of the church tradition through this book that talks about contemporary politics and realities? Yes, I mean, I, th- that's, I think that's the unique part of this book is it combines the two because 
as a, you know, I became a Catholic when I was 57. And when you begin to see the worldview, which Catholicism is a bigger worldview, not a smaller one. It's a bigger worldview than, than the secular world. Once you see that bigger worldview, then you can say, oh, I see there were some good things about feminism. And but also let's go farther. Let's let, let's 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 take it further. So yes, I want, this is one of the first books I think that actually combine combines secular feminism, if you will, with Catholicism, which which, which looks at it in a deeper way. Deeper. You have to remember those young women or those women who were who were. Um, complaining about their lives, that they were home, they were homemakers, they were bored, they were this, they were that. First of all, they were all in their mid-40s, so they'd raised their kids, okay? This was a survey that was done by Betty Friedan of her classmates, okay? So these women were not young women having babies who were dissatisfied at home. These were women who'd already raised their kids. But they, what were they worried about? What were, they, what were, what were their problems? The problems were internal. Yeah. They were, their interior lives were a mess. They, their problems were spiritual, but they didn't know it. And that's the same way today. With, with so many of these radical leftist feminists, their problems are spiritual and they don't know it. Oh, goodness. The writing in the street has to do with that, too. You know? That's right. That's right. That's right. They just don't know it. And, and, and it's, it's, it's tragic that as, as, as Christians, we cannot seem to get this word out. We've been pushed up in, in a little corner somewhere right. where we're speaking. You know, I can't, I can't write for my secular uh, markets anymore. Right. I, wrote for, I wrote for Cosmopolitan, New Woman, which is now defunct. But this was, this was a feminist magazine. I wrote for Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest is almost gone. Um, right. So we can't get this word out. And I, they, that is very frustrating to me. I bet it is to you, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you did transition from Cosmo writer to Ignatius Press writer, uh, an Augustine Institute writer? Um, how, how did that happen? It was a search for truth, Catherine. It was a search for truth. As a journalist, you're looking for the truth. And I would find little bits and pieces of the truth here and there. There's, and, and just like there's little bits of pieces of the truth in feminism, you know, actually pretty good size ones. But I would find little pieces here and little pieces there, there and little pieces here. And I was searching for the truth. And finally, one day, my husband said, well, maybe we should become Catholics. And I said, I'm not going to join that patriarchal old church. <laughs> <laughs> and then one thing led to another, and we ended up in, in, a, in a mass, and then the priest told us to, uh, asked us to get the catechism. And I got the catechism. I could not put it down. I wow. wrote three days straight. This was not the, the stuffy old patriarchal Catholic church I'd heard about. This was about joy and peace and love. And I, I, I was a Protestant. So I would say, well, where does it say that in the Bible? And then it's all footnoted. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was the catechism. A book. A book convinced me. <laughs> wow. Did you feel enveloped by the truth that you were reading? Oh, I fell I fell head over in heels in love with the Catholic Church. Wow. I was like, oh, I am. Guess what? Guess what? I moved from Cal. I lived. I I I'm lived next door to it by a priest for ten years in a little house, little house on the church property. And when our little um, parish went 
we, we couldn't afford to pay the mortgage anymore. He moved to Cali- from California to Wyoming. Guess who followed him? <laughs> really? So that, that's how you're, you're in Wyoming Catholic? I didn't want to leave that beautiful liturgy. It's actually Byzantine, right? And uh, it's hard to find. Hard oh, yeah, that is remarkably beautiful. Yeah. And so I, I, it was either moved to Los Angeles to be with my son down there or to go to, Cal- to Wyoming. And I decided to come to Wyoming. <laughs> with your mainstream not Catholic friends, is there there's something you try to convey to them, share the most about the Catholic Church? Which ones? <laughs> I have lost all my friends. Really? <laughs> I've lost all my old friends. I've got mm-hmm. one left. One left. She's she's in her eighties. She's Jewish and very sweet lady. <laughs> but but uh, no, I've lost all my old secular friends. And what do you think that is? Fear of the truth. And no, I think it's just I think it's the matter of not being in the same circles. Okay. You know, I was in I was a journalist in a, a certain journalism group, and then I left that group. I mean, I'm not part of that group sure. anymore. And uh, I've got a lot of new new Catholic friends. <laughs> well, I, I imagine they're very appreciative of your presence in their life. Speaking of that old circle, though, can you talk about Helen Gurley Brown and um, and why she's again important to revisit as you well, do? Helen Gurley Brown was she, was the editor of Cosmo in the 1970s and 80s and into the 90s. And she was she was the one that turned Cosmo from a general interest magazine into a sex journal. It was a, it was a uh, um, a Playboy clone. She actually went to Hugh Hefner and got some of his writers and some of his uh, agents and stuff like that and, he, and 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 remember now Hugh Hefner reduced a woman. He he based his um, magazine on Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, who reduced a woman to a sexual animal. He didn't, you know, a woman was just a sexual animal. She had all these desires and that was it. Playboy comes along, Hugh Hefner comes along and creates what? The Playboy bunny. Okay, an animal. That's a woman. Then Cosmo comes along and creates what? The Cosmo Pussycat, another animal. So the the sexual revolution was a reduction of a woman to a to a sexual animal. No no soul, no no thought processes. She can't control herself. She's just a sexual animal. And Helen Gurley Brown was the one that created that Cosmo girl, that persona. Which and and when I was a Cosmo. Helen Gurley Brown even had a list of rules on how to lie to make up this woman that we call the Cosmo Girl. And it, this, this Cosmo Girl, which Helen Gurley Brown invented, she was an advertising uh, copywriter. She was, she was a very good advertiser. She invented that Cosmo Girl. We see her everywhere today. She's on the internet. She's in the, in the movie. She's on television. Sex in the City was, a, was, was, a, was ripped off from, if you will, ripped off, copied from Cosmo. Um, Helen Gurley Brown also wrote a book called Sex in the Office, where she had taught women how to seduce men in the office. And it was very, and now isn't that again what we're 
arguing about or what people are protesting, the Me Too movement says, well, we don't want to be treated like that. Well, <laughs> don't act like that. <laughs> and, and, and that's what Helen Gurley Brown taught so many young women to do was to use sex as power. That was very important for her, sex as power, because women can use sex as power if they want to. But, uh, she, you know, she took it out of the sex as love category and put it into a sex as power. So Helen Gurley Brown's um, Cosmo persona was very much a joining of the sexual revolution with feminism. It was one of the first magazines, one of the first um journalistic enterprises, if you will, that joined the two together. Then it was so successful with advertisers that all the other women's magazines fell, fell into line with it. You understand how that works. The advertisers were controlling the, the content, of course, of course. Sure. And of course, that is much of our culture, not, not just the magazines these days. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, that was yeah. 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 So the church has said that about women at this moment when the human race is undergoing so deep a transformation, women impregnated with the spirit of the gospel can do so much to aid mankind in not falling. And I feel like your book is a bit of a handbook for that. Well, good. I hope so. I hope that I hope so very much because it's it's gives gives feminism the strength the strength of women back to women. I mean, back to real women who who are um, in touch with their interior lives, with peace, with joy. Look at the difference between the March for Life and the Walk for Life and that women's march. Look how joyful the sure. people are at the March for Life and how angry they are at the women's march. Why are they so angry? Because they've got a lot of stuff inside. That's, that's, they're not happy. They're not happy. Yeah, I, I've been to to both marches, and uh, what what was striking to me the day after Donald Trump's inauguration, when they had the women's march on Fifth Avenue in New York, um, it went right by uh, St. Uh, Patrick's Cathedral, and the Sisters of Life were actually inside at the time. Um, some came out and and talked to some of the women, and actually one woman talked about it afterward. Um, she actually went in for confession because the sisters were so attractive, and and she confessed her her abortion. Um, and then went to a post-abortion healing retreat and really powerful. Um, but the point I wanted to bring up is I saw signs that day that were like homemade signs that said hashtag sad. And I thought that sort of captured it, you know, um, you know, this is, this is almost like some kind of therapy or catharsis to, to go out into the streets um, because, because there are things about life that are miserable, including, you know, in some degrees, our, our culture, right? Okay. That's right. Oh, that's 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 a beautiful thing. But hash marks sad. You see? Yeah. 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 Well, no. Okay, because we're gonna come clean. Because I've come clean in my other books and everything. So you know, I had an abortion. I aborted my third child, and that tortured me for many, many years. And it wasn't until I came into the Catholic Church that I was healed from that. And the joy. I cannot tell you the joy that I've had since I became a Catholic. It's, I, it's just it's peace and joy and love. I've, it's, it's never left me. And it's been now since 2003, 17 years. Well, one thing that has always been so striking to me is right before Dorothy Day died, she wrote an essay for Commonweal where she still talk, was talking about the pain of her abortion and the regret. And, um, and if, if, 
by chance, some woman is watching this who has had an abortion and, and saw the Catholic feminist uh, phraseology and was intrigued, you know, what, what might you want to say to her, communicate to her about your journey and, and how it might help her? Well, the, I, that was, it was confession that healed me. But there are lots of programs out there. If, 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 that did, if you need more um, healing, uh, there's Rachel's Vineyard. There's lots of, of programs out there for post-abortive trauma, if you will. It was, it's a trauma. Um, but the, the, what I would like to say is the peace that you can feel. Get rid of all that anxiety and pain and anger, where, whatever you've got in there. And, and find the peace and joy because it's there. God forgives you. Um, and and that's the thing that you don't believe that God can do. Unless you think, oh, I can't. You know, and I have to forgive myself. No, 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 no. You have to forgive yourself. When God forgives you, that is bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And in addition to uh, what you mentioned, Project Rachel and the Sisters of Life are resources for, for anyone who is... Um, in need of healing from from an abortion. So uh, we have only a few minutes, um, but I was struck by, uh, you you wrote that obviously sex revolution feminism has seized the pinnacles of media power in this nation. But on a grassroots level, you write, where power really resides, millions of well-organized, interconnected, pro-life Christian feminists are still fighting for genuine respect and dignity for the authentic personhood of all women young and old, healthy and unhealthy, rich and poor, born and unborn. They're they're well organized in a vast interconnected army of love and they're encircling others everywhere with their peace, joy and hope. Is that really true? (laughs) Give us some examples here. Yes, yes. We're in need of hope, Sue Ellen. (laughs) Look, look, look at the pro-life movement. Look how big it is. And it's everywhere. Everywhere you go, you find it. And these people are well, very well organized. And look at how much the March for Life has grown. And in 1979, the National Organization for Women had 100,000 members. And the national, uh, or the uh, Pro, what was it? The the pro life movement, just just one one branch of it, had 11 million members, 110 times as many. So this has been growing um, years and years ago in the light, late 1970s. Again, um, only one percent of the American people said that uh, uh, abortion was an issue for the presidential election. Look at it today. If you don't think you're winning. Look at the presidential election and how much we're talking about abortion. You haven't kept that. You haven't let that um, story die at all. It's gotten stronger. We're winning. We're winning. Keep going. Keep going. The pro-life movement is the authentic women's movement of the 21st century, and I and I I, I believe that 100 <laughs> percent. And these young women who you're talking about your book with, what um what gives you hope for them? Because obviously, the obstacles are are great, right, in the culture. Yeah, well, they they see the truth. I mean, the truth is what gives me hope for them, that they see the truth and they're not going to let it go. And that even with all of the stuff on the Internet and all the the lies and floating around us and everything, they perceive the truth and they want to spread it. And that that's that's what gives me hope. And that's what uh, I love. These these young ladies, they're the they're the future. What's your final pitch uh, for why people should give your your book a look? 
Well, because it's quick, you can go to get that history fast and you can figure out where in this story you belong. Because we've all lived this story, but but how do how do you how do you fit into the picture? Mm-hmm. And I think that that little section I, I read, um, your point about the grassroots level, you know, which is really, you know, the home, the community, the parish, most important thing. Um, I think people frequently don't appreciate their own power. Uh, you know, we get so distracted by whatever's on the news. Um, turn the news off. And, uh, right. and, and hello, someone in the media is telling you to. to. <laughs> I, it, I agree with you 100%. Turn it off. Turn it off and live your life. Exactly. And, you, and the truth will set you free, right? Right, right, right. Our hope is is in uh, living lives of virtue and, and I'm following, uh, following who we say we are, right? Well, Sue, Sue Ellen Browder, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your book. Thank you for your time. Thank you to Ignatius Press for uh, publishing this book in the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press for organizing this. I'm Catherine Lopez from the National Review Institute. And uh, God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.